I'm the Reverend Kat Benakis, and this is the Holy Holy Podcast. We've been on a bit of a hiatus, but we're back with a short season tightly focused on economic and workforce issues. Now, we're going to be focusing specifically on how these issues play out in the Chicago area. If you're listening and you're not from the Chicago area or you don't live here, you should still keep listening. Chicago is a bit of a microcosm for the rest of the country. And if things can work here, chances are they can work elsewhere. That's particularly true when it comes to issues around race relations and segregation, where Chicago has been uniquely bad. I chose Chicago for the microcosm, for the race, also because I live here, as do my parents, as did their parents and their parents. I am uniquely invested in Chicago as a thriving, wonderful place. For general framing, the first episode is on the concept of workforce. And I spoke with Carrie Thomas, executive director of the Chicago Jobs Council, for some background on it. We are a member-based organization. We don't provide direct services, but all of our members are mostly community-based organizations that are helping people find jobs using on-the-ground experience, advocacy, and capacity building. And at our core, we're an anti-poverty organization. We began by talking about what the historically low stats around unemployment leave out. The big economic indicators that we now pay attention to are things like job growth and the unemployment rate and the stock market. But all of those things really don't tell us the story about what real people are experiencing. And so what is happening, for example, underneath that unemployment rate in Chicago is that there are communities, neighborhoods, and then specific populations that are not seeing low unemployment. So low unemployment is really just an average across the country or across the state or even across the city. It also leaves out all of the people who would like to have a job but have stopped looking for work for some reason or another. So what we see is, for example, young people, so young adults, 18 to 24, are experiencing higher rates of unemployment higher rates of disconnection in general, because some people might assume, well, sure, they don't have a job because they're finishing up school or they're going to go back to school. But really, there are too many young people in Chicago that are disconnected from both. Um, So we see much higher rates of that. We see much higher rates of unemployment amongst young people who are African-American and Latino. We also see I think one of the things that's really masked is that people do not have the kind of job that they want, so they don't have enough hours, or it's temporary work, it's not stable work, or that um, the wages aren't sufficient. So when I say underemployment, I mean I'm not making enough, or a person isn't doesn't have enough hours, or their skills aren't being used. So that's another factor that we see a lot. And if I am a young 20-something living in Chicago, have grown up in a very, very low-income situation, what are my reasonable options for work? And like, how much am I actually going to be able to make Mm -hmm. um, if I am coming out without a huge number of skills? 
There's actually a lot of entry-level employment in sectors that don't require a whole lot of credentials, but there are no non-skilled jobs. So really, customer service, digital skills, being able to work with other people, so sort of team and being able to work with other people, just kind of real life on the ground experience. Those are really necessary for any job. So if you're a young person and you don't have a lot of credentials, so you, you know you don't necessarily have this certification or a BA or a, or a particular industry certification, if you do have some of those basic skills, there is entry-level work. The challenge is, the quality of those jobs. So what the wages are, what benefits they provide, the stability of those jobs. A big issue in a lot of retail is scheduling. So I think a lot of people hear about scheduling issues where individuals won't get their schedule until like the end of the week before the week they have to start working. So if you're a parent or you have other family caregiving responsibilities, planning those out when you don't know your work schedule is really impossible. And if we think about the difference between an entry-level job and lifetime employment slash career, if I can get a job that's mm-hmm. potentially entry-level through using different networks and, and so on. What are the opportunities or barriers, however we want to think about it, to that initial service work or customer service or hospitality industry or retail job then actually being something over the course of 40 years, both the ability to stay employed, but also interest and increased wages? This is the big issue right now in the economy, actually, for all of us. This isn't just young people starting out. This really affects all of us. So a couple of things. One is that some people use the term the fissuring of employment, of the employer-employee relationship. So you hear a lot about this. So I'll just start with that the increase in the gig economy. There are studies that show that it's not as big of an increase as we think. It's not the entire future. But there are so many examples of people who are putting together different contract work or kind of being entrepreneurial and starting their own business. I think the point of that conversation and the indicators around the so-called gig economy is simply that there are fewer and fewer places that somebody can stay for 40 years and work, right? There are fewer institutions that are going to employ people in that way. And so we all have to be thinking about what the trajectory of work over a lifetime, which may be in one area or it may be in multiple areas. It may be, it may include lots of that lifelong learning and reskilling, or it may just be moving around to different employers. We also talked about what the most significant barriers to employment are. And while training, as you might imagine, is a big factor, that topic has had some decent legislative and industry attention. Though, of course, it's never perfect and never enough. The bigger issue is really geographic. What's interesting is that in workforce and employment advocacy, um, when you talk about the workforce, people like skills. It's all skills. How are we going to fill the skills gap? Very true. But when you talk to people at the front lines of service delivery, the top challenge that they identify is transportation. And it's not just giving people some money for a bus pass. It's not just helping people get insurance for their car. 
The big thing we've been working on is actually suspended driver's licenses. So it turns out there are a wide variety of ways and reasons that we actually suspend driver's licenses that has nothing to do with moving violations. It has a lot to do with municipal and court debt collection. So state law allows for the suspension of driver's license if you have more than X number of overdue parking tickets or some fines. And so we've actually uncovered really these major downward spirals that result in a driver's license suspension and then not being able to pay back debt because you can't get a job because you don't have a car, et cetera, et cetera. So that is just one really thorny issue. But another is, for example, we were working on a project, some community groups in the Southland, and it was to try to figure out better integration of training with childcare needs of parents And what was the number one issue? Transportation. Most of these parents are in a training program, but they also probably have some work that they're doing. Plus they have children that have lives. (laughs) Most of them who have more than one child have more than one place to take their child. So there's school, there's after school care, there's summer care, there's the zero to five child care that people have. And all of that, the big challenge for them is navigating Um, the transportation issues. So that in and of itself, like for us doing that project, we were very well versed in the transportation challenges, but that that came up in a focus group with parents. And they immediately went to all these really fascinating ideas about like we could have Uber for kids. How would we manage that transportation just in our network and also their own solutions to the transportation challenge, which is like, I trust this person with my kids. So she and I work out like when we need to support each other and who has a car or who has a way to get somewhere. Very interesting. It also came up with a project that we were working on in Will County. They were doing a major study of the freight industry there. So it was a major plan for supporting the freight industry. So you can imagine that was all about things that I don't even know the language around but they wanted to do a workforce piece, which was all about skills and hiring. But then in addition, they had a whole piece that they hired somebody to look at, which was a workforce mobility piece. So that was all about how to help more people get to these jobs because one of their number one issues was the transportation challenges of people who either did work for them or wanted to work for them. So they had a whole set of recommendations about public transportation, about how to improve transit between, you know, these big, huge distribution centers, which are, very far out for the people who want to work there. And then once you get there themselves, it's a big campus of getting around there. So that is one of the big issues. And I think it's great that people are talking about it. It's very complicated though, you know, when you think about the region, it's not just a public transit solution. It's not just a car solution. And it's gonna have to be both the workforce system, but also employers themselves thinking about how they wanna get people to the jobs. Especially if the jobs don't actually pay that well. Um, I mean, that's the other interesting thing about the driver's license suspension issue is like, not only are you excluded from getting to jobs, but there's a whole set of jobs like forklift operator, you know, that are in some of those big job centers that you can't even get and work matters. You can go to any other system. And so by system, I mean, you know, you can go to like food shelf or a food bank or, you know, the SNAP benefits system, or you could go to the homeless system, homeless providers, you're always gonna find people who really want to work. And so 
I think we have this assumption that people have to sort of come into the workforce system or show up at a college or, you know, show up at a job fair and, and everybody else is not motivated and they don't have to work. I just, I think that's a really, that's a factor that we kind of forget is that the vast majority of people, even people who are struggling day to day, really against insurmountable odds, having a job is what they want. And having a job would actually make a huge difference in their life stability and their mental health and their health in general. We don't really talk about that that way. We mostly want to punish people who aren't working when really we should be finding all kinds of unique ways to reach out and bring people into work. In this country, I mean, we can complain about how much we work and, you know, maybe we all would like to be living in Europe and have all the kinds of paid vacation, but that's not the way it is here. So the vast majority of what we do every day is in workplaces and to leave so many people out of that just seems just unfair and unsocial. And and unethical. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That leads us to our panel, a group of religious leaders who, it turns out, care deeply about the dignity of work. Abdul Malik Ryan. At the Paul, I'm the Assistant Director of the Office of Religious Diversity and Muslim Chaplain. Ike Serrata. I've been the rabbi at Lakeside Congregation in Highland Park, Illinois, for the last 21 years. And David Watkins. I serve as Senior Pastor of Greater Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church here in Chicago, Washington Park community. Ike kicked us off in talking about the value of work within a religious tradition. The the books of the Torah talk about uh, the dignity of work, and that's why in the book of Leviticus, farmers are required to leave the corners of their field rather than pick them and give them to people who are hungry. The idea was for people to be able to come and work and gather food on their own and be able to uh, sustain themselves and perhaps even learn how to do the work so that they could do it for themselves. So the dignity of work is very important, but it's also equally important to make sure that we take care of people who are disenfranchised and for one reason or another, perhaps outside of the workforce, whether it's people who are ill or elderly or simply unable to find work in a field that they can afford to live at. So both of those things are a required part of the Jewish tradition. As a Baptist, you might have heard the adage that, you know, if you have three Baptists in a room, you have 10 different opinions. And so I don't want to speak on behalf of the entire Baptist tradition, but I do want to offer this, is that even in the creation story where we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, part of their role was to tend the garden. And right, even from the beginning of creation, before the fall, that work was an essential part of what it meant to be fully human. And so in persons, for persons of color, communities of color, where the unemployment rate is two, three times that of what uh, has been reported, there is a dignity issue, there is an injustice issue, because we as people should be able to work. It is part of who we are, created in the image of God, have the ability to be creative and innovative and contribute to a society and a world to make it a better place. And so work is important just to be a fully human person on the planet Earth representing God and community with neighbors. That brings up a really interesting part of the end of Carrie Thomas's statement about how it is uh, somehow unfair or unsocial not to provide opportunities for people to work. Uh, so, so whose responsibility is it to make work or to make jobs? I realize that that might be an overly political question, but we are people of ethical traditions who take on such responsibilities. One 
beautiful story that I always come back to from the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the Prophet Muhammad, he had a companion named Abu Huraira. And this is true of a few stories, but it's something that I've really, in my own experience working with people, I've really seen the truth of. Abu Huraira was a community who became one of the great scholars of the Muslim community, but at that time he was basically from Ahl Sufa. He was basically living in a homeless shelter next to the mosque. Mm. And he would spend all his time with the Prophet. That's what now allowed him to become a great scholar later on. So he would spend all his time with him. But he said sometimes he would be so hungry because he wasn't working or anything that he was literally like rolling on the ground. And people used to say that there's something wrong with him, but he was hungry and he didn't want to ask for food. Mm. But he said that one day, he was talking to other people, trying to get them to see the need, but no one was seeing that what he needed. But except he said, then the prophet, peace be upon him, saw me. He said, and he saw what was in my face and what was in my soul. And then he took him and he said, Ya Abu Huraira. And he came to him and he said, La Baik, Ya Rasulullah. He said, I'm at your service, Ya Rasulullah. And then he sent him on a task to go get this food and to serve a bunch of other people, serve everybody in the shelter. And then at the last... He was nervous the whole time that the food would run out, but it didn't run out. And at the last, he drank. And what I love about this story and what I find resonates with people that I've interacted with is that people have basic needs. People need shelter. People need food. But they don't just need that. They need a sense of meaning. They need a yes. sense of purpose. They need to be involved in life. So the better thing than just giving him the milk was to show him that he was a per he was feeding others, that he was a dignified part of the community. And so I often find this when we go out and we feed people and stuff. Sometimes there's a tendency, people will often ask, like you say, do you want a sandwich? Do you want a meal? They'll say, can I help you serve the other people? And sometimes for organization or whatever time, you're like, I don't necessarily want to bring them in. But I think the more we can bring people in yes. and not have a capacity of some people serving others or some people feeling the need of others, but allowing people to become part of a whole community where we all fulfill each other's needs all the time in a totally mutual way. That is really what we're aspiring to. You know, in the Muslim tradition, it's interesting because so much stress is placed on the fact that God is the one who provides everything. So God provides your food and your sustenance for your family and everything like that. So because so much stress is put on that, there would be a concern arising at times that people would take the attitude that I don't have to work. A provision will come to me. I should just pray all day. That's more noble. So because of that concern, the tradition and, and the Prophet himself peace be upon him, had to be very clear to people that your provision will still come to you regardless, but your responsibility is to work and to seek that provision. And that is something between you and God. And then there was also great sensitivity to the fact, though, that people can be marginalized for different reasons from work. It's a responsibility on people to work, but it's a responsibility of the community to make sure that they have the tools to work and the opportunities to work. Mm -hmm. It's it's both the role of those in the community and those who also, you know, are in the corporations to partner together to make work available and accessible to all, especially for persons of color who have been marginalized and oppressed for so many years. I believe it was Dr. King who said, you know, all work is worthwhile and all work has dignity. But sometimes industrial companies only look at African-Americans and persons of color as the lowest rung on the totem pole, and they can only do certain things. I want to suggest that, you know, um, reparations is, is where I want to go here, is that there is a responsibility for corporations and businesses who for years have gained what they've gotten on the backs of those who have been oppressed and marginalized for so long to 
provide the training, the skills, the opportunities, and also the finances to get the education and do the jobs that are necessary to continue to be productive citizens in this country. There are so many things that have been uh, turned into villains, I think, in recent years, <laughs> things like unions that have mm. helped people uh, lift themselves out from poverty. I mean, uh, every year I take our students to to New York City, actually, and one of the places we visit is the place where unions in New York were first started, the, the Taylor's Union uh -huh. on the Lower East Side of New York. And we, we've made those things into the villains these days, yeah. right? Yep. There's definitely a place for entrepreneurs to, to create these things. But we also should recognize that both the government and, and big corporations, as you talked about, should uh, have some responsibility for creating those kinds of programs that lift people out of poverty and allow people to organize so that they get a fair wage for what they do. Absolutely. If we do believe that uh, part of the pursuit, the human pursuit, is for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I think it's right in our creed that all of us should be cooperating and collaborating together to make that a lived experience and reality for all people. And not to say that it would be easy, but at least let us challenge ourselves and ask the tough questions to see how do we make progress towards that goal. But the Muslim tradition reminds us that it's not just the abstract corporations, but rather more personal community. I think in the Islamic tradition, obligations are always divided into things which are individual obligations and then things which are collective obligations. And so something like working as an individual, if you're able, is an individual obligation. But providing work and training so that there's opportunities for everyone in the community is a collective obligation of the whole community. Now, one of the tricky things that I think we'll get into today is that when you say something is an obligation of the community, is everyone in the community is sinful if it's not being fulfilled. But I think in echoing the comments of the other panelists that those people have the ability, those people have the skills, talents, who have companies who have to provide jobs. They have a responsibility because obviously they should be the ones who can do it are the ones who have the responsibility to do it. But then especially in our time, the way that we express our communal obligations is through the state, is through the government. And so the, it would be the responsibility of the state if it's not being provided by anyone else or if no one else can provide it, doesn't have the capacity to step up and fulfill that obligation. But I do think it's, it can be a little dangerous to automatically just go to the state should provide it because mm -hmm. that somehow lets other people not being involved and, 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 and sometimes that results in loss of the sense of community when people just feel that if there's something that people need, the, this, the government should provide it. Everyone should feel their own responsibility as part of the community, but the government should definitely feel its responsibility if no one's else fulfilling it to step into that role and take care of it. And, and to what degree do you speak in your religious congregations and communities about employing people and the good of hiring and job creating in a more one-on-one, -on -one, knowing that it's rolling up, but that every person is part of that greater community? Yeah. And this is one of the, you know, beautiful things. Um, and I, I know it's present in many other communities, but in my own experience, it came when I came into the Muslim community and um, the Muslim community is a very diverse community with different experiences and backgrounds. But both of the major segments of it, which are the African-American Muslim community and the immigrant Muslim communities, have stressed uh, work and opportunity. The African-American Muslim community has always been one which stressed building up business and building up uh, economic potential in the community. So if you go to any African-American mosque, there will be stress on kind of economic opportunity as part of being a Muslim and part of being 
uh, someone who helps others and strengthens the community. And then in the immigrant communities I've been part of, it's been very there I see one of the examples of what I'm talking about, which is there is a sense of collective responsibility that if someone comes from our community, from our extended family network, that we have to show them the ropes. We have to show them this is how you get a job. We have to hire them if we have a company, that we have that there is that sense of shared collective responsibility, which I find very inspiring. And sometimes it's only limited to a certain community or from a certain area. But if we could expand that kind of relationship to the broader community, I think that's what I've found to have a lot of potential. Because I often find myself, as someone who's not an entrepreneur, I I'm often find myself coming into touch with a lot of people who really need someone who has those skills. They don't necessarily need someone that can give them a sermon or go over a religious text <laughs> with them. They might benefit from that, but especially if they don't have a job, that's a bigger issue for them. And so I value those people in our community, and I think it's important to realize that those people who can help people with resumes, who can help people know how to be successful. Those people are really ones that I find most beneficial to the community. And the saying in our tradition is that the person who is most beloved to God is the one who is most beneficial to fellow human beings. It's mm. mm. lovely. For the Jewish community, we're generally maybe one generation, sometimes two away from that immigrant experience. And so uh, a lot of the folks in my community certainly feel very connected to the modern day issue of immigration in America and uh, uh, reaching out not just to um, first generation Jewish immigrants who are still coming from places like the former Soviet Union and those folks, but also uh, new immigrants who are coming to America and uh, wanting to reach out and help. It all stems from um, a word with, which I know there's a cognate in Islam. We have tzedakah and you have tzakat, right? Uh, yes. uh, which is sometimes incorrectly translated as charity, but it's really justice. And so this pursuit of justice for all people, whether it's to our benefit or not to our benefit, is something that our tradition requires of us. Well, in our tradition, in the Baptist tradition, and specifically at our church, um, Bethesda, you know, in John chapter 5 in the Holy, Holy Text, we talk about a man who had been invalid for 38 years. And Jesus comes by and says, pick up your mat and walk. And part of the, what I uh, challenge the church to say is, okay, if he's been out of a job for 38 years, how can he go back and be a successful part of the community when he hasn't, he hasn't been able to exercise that ability? So we talk about job skills. We talk about job training. We talk about how do we help those or be in partnership with organizations that can provide this kind of training that we can't provide ourselves. And, and that's very much a yes and of yes, we're doing it within our own community and also there is a larger corporate in the small c responsibility for how we think about these things. Absolutely. And part of the African-American tradition um, is this idea of umoja or cooperative economics, that we have a responsibility within our community to support each other, to build up our, our, our own businesses, et cetera. And we also have the responsibility to demand of the larger community that same type of support for the very reasons of why we got here in the first place. Yeah, I think that's why, as, as we said, I think at the beginning, it's so important to understand that sometimes these are individual issues that someone needs, mm -hmm. you know, help with a resume or something like that. But often there are deep structural issues to why people have limited access to employment. There are neighborhoods where employment is very scarce. 
There are neighborhoods where there's a lot of challenges to get jobs. And so that, that is a challenge to sometimes lose sight of these deep structural things and just put it on individuals or even on individual relationships. We have to understand that deep structural problems require deep structural solutions. And so definitely the government and those people with power over those structures need to be held accountable and need to be um, included in solutions. It's very important to understand that the entrepreneur doesn't do it by him or herself, right? Yes. That, uh, yes. Uh, you know, for someone to uh, get a job in a neighborhood that's not their neighborhood and mm -hmm. then be able to get there, you need the infrastructure and the, the public transportation, mm -hmm. the highways, whatever it takes to, to get people from one neighborhood to another. And that's clearly a, a structure that isn't going to be provided by the person who owns the business. Yes. Right? That's our responsibility uh, to make sure that those kinds of things are available so that people can get to a decent job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that connects to what Carrie Thomas was talking about of transportation being one, one of the key issues in today's day and age of workforce is getting to the actual bit, which on the one hand seems not related, right, to the actual are there jobs, but in this moment, getting a person from point A to point B and making sure that their kids have coverage during mm -hmm. that time is one of the big barriers to employment. There may be a job, but if it's not near you and you can't get to it, what difference does it make if it's there? I, I think the word is accessibility, right? I mean, uh, there can be plenty of resources, plenty of opportunities, but if we don't have access to them, uh, right, there are structural barriers that prevent young people from getting from point A to point B, then thanks but no thanks. I mean, unless we're willing to make the true commitment to go from A to Z, everything that is needed for someone to get this gainful employment and do a great job, then I think we should maybe just have lunch and say, okay, that's it. But we need to make those commitments to make sure that if we are committed to an equal and just society where everyone can make a valuable contribution to that society, then we need to put all the structural pieces in place that everybody can participate in that economy. And I think we, we have to, again, be honest with ourselves that these are not just accidents that the jobs are here and the people are here. <laughs> Talk so. These are These were deliberate yes. systems yes. set up. Yes. There are zoning, there are government policies that make that people of means and people who are in successful areas consciously keep poor people live far away from them and then say, well, you need to come out and spend all your day traveling to get here so that you can work in a service job in our neighborhood, but then you have to go back home because we're not going to let you live near here. And so this is this is deeply problematic. And I think it's something, you know, I said we have to be honest about it, but people are not always lying. Sometimes people don't realize that. Sometimes yes. people, yes. people, especially with privilege, that's what privilege is all about. It's mm -hmm. having something you don't have to think about, that you don't have to realize. So sometimes people who grew up in a better situation and had more opportunity, they don't stop to think. And they're just like, oh, well, why don't those people move here? Like, it's easier to live here. But they don't stop to think of all the factors why those people can't live there and why those structures are set to keep them out of there. That explains why those statistics are so misleading, right? Mm -hmm. Because, right. Uh, you hear the statistics and say, well, everybody's working, right? But yeah. not really. Mm -hmm. But it's easy to get suckered into the statistics unless you know the people that are looking for work and struggling to find something that's a decent wage and that's in a place where they can get to. Unfortunately, we must end but what a great way to kick us off. We've got some fabulous episodes coming up on incarceration and on the cost of childcare and on unaccompanied minors as related to immigration. So please keep listening. 
I'm grateful today to Carrie Thomas at the Chicago Jobs Council. You can learn more about them at cjc.net. My fantastic panel, Abdul Malik Ryan, Ike Serrata, and David Watkins. Our panel was recorded at the WBEZ studios in Chicago, and editing was provided by David Shulman. Incredible thanks to all of these people. Until next time, peace be with you.